Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at cars and transport from a variety of angles. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories with David Campbell, including Nissan's global production reaches 150 million units over the life of the company. Errol Smith and I reflect on a range of transport snippets that have come up in conversations during the week. We discuss Kia's significant new car, the Stinger, where it's placed in the market and what it means for the company and the company image. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith, we take an easygoing look at some quirky news stories, including Jaguar restores its E-Type as an electric car. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Nissan has reached a new milestone, having produced 150 million vehicles globally. Nissan was founded in 1933, and it took 73 years for Nissan to produce its first 100 million vehicles, and only another 11 years to build the last 50 million. When Nissan reached the 100 million vehicle milestone in 2006, three quarters of its vehicles had been produced in Japan. Localization of production accelerated in the past 11 years, during which time 76% of the 50 million vehicles were made outside of Japan. In Europe, Nissan has been manufacturing in Spain and in the UK for more than 30 years, and established a plant in St. Petersburg in Russia 10 years ago. Ford and India's Mahindra Group will cooperate in a new agreement to advance electric and connected vehicle technology. Ford is seeking to expand its presence in India, while Mahindra wants to expand its reach outside of the country. The companies have announced that they will cooperate on mobility, electrification and connected vehicle projects. India has proved to be a tough environment for US automakers. In May, General Motors said it would pull its Chevrolet brand out of India by the end of the year. Researchers at the University of Waterloo in Canada have developed algorithms that can accurately determine when drivers are texting or engaged in other distracting activities. The system uses cameras and artificial intelligence to detect hand movements that are not associated with normal driving behaviour and classifies them in terms of possible safety threats. Researchers say the system could be used to improve road safety by warning or alerting drivers when they are dangerously distracted. In addition, as advanced self-driving systems become more common, signs of serious driver distraction could be used to trigger alarms or protective measures. The algorithms were developed to recognize actions such as texting, talking on a cell phone or reaching into the back seat to retrieve something. And still in Canada, the city of Toronto has seen an average drop of 40% in the number of collisions causing a death or serious injury at intersections equipped with red light cameras. At some locations, there have been no deaths or serious injuries caused by collisions since the cameras were installed. The city has almost doubled its red light cameras as part of a plan aimed at eliminating traffic deaths and serious injuries. To date, 65 new cameras have been placed at intersections this year, with another 10 to come. The president of the Ontario Safety League says that signage is the key to making sure the cameras are effective. 
He said that unlike common tactics like speed bumps and chicanes, increasing the number of red light cameras is one of the traffic calming and behaviour modification projects that actually does work. Recently released research indicates that flying might not be quite as safe as many people think. A study of more than 200 cabin crew found a clear link between contaminated air and ill health. Researchers from Stirling University in the UK found a pattern of acute and chronic symptoms ranging from headaches and dizziness to breathing and vision problems. Dr Susan Michaelis from the university said there is a clear cause and effect relationship linking health effects to a design feature that allows the aircraft's air supply to become contaminated by engine oils and other fluids in flight. The study, published by the World Health Organization, is the first of its kind to look at the in-depth health of aircrew. Well, before we talk some quirky news with Errol Smith, I thought I'd have a little chat to him about a few things that I found out during the week. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. So, Errol, I was down at the launch of the Kia Stinger, which I can't talk about the drive impression, although we fanged it around a race circuit, among other things, took it out in the country. But it's got an embargo on that for a little while, but we can talk a little bit some issues, and we will uh, later in the program. But while I was there, I was talking to their guy who tunes the suspensions for Australian conditions. He told me that 95% of cars are sold in countries that have severe winters. Mm. Maybe it's a country that may not have winters, you know, severe winters all over the place. One of those places, of course, would be America, and clearly California might not be one that had a, a severe yes. winter. Canada, Alaska. Japan. Yeah, well, even England would have um, yep, severe Europe. winters, I would have thought. Yeah, most of Europe. So there's quite a big effort, and there's a number of testing locations around the world, some up near Antarctica, one in New Zealand, that tests on snow conditions. Mm. It's rather interesting, isn't it? But, of course, then that raises the point then that that's not really the situation in Australia. We have a few no. winter snow places, but that's not for many people. Yeah, I mean, most cars sold in Australia would, would never touch snow. Nor dirt, as, as it turns out. Well, yes, especially if they're an SUV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My European-made car has a blanket around the battery so that it doesn't freeze. And I've, uh, I've wondered if that's, that's a good thing in Australia on a 45-degree day, but uh, the batteries have generally lasted a reasonable amount of years, so I, I can't complain. Oh, that's interesting, because taxis, one of their great concerns is that they run for so long and so often the battery is in a hot environment for so long and you know, so often mm. that you don't get it to cool down. Sounds like something my mother would suggest. It hasn't been crocheted or anything, has it? <laughs> There was a guy there, a mate of mine, who does a lot of truck reviews too. He said there was one truck, a B-double, for a tanker for petrol, and they'd installed emergency, automatic emergency braking, but in reverse. The principle being is that they often stop in a service station, fill up, and then they back out. And, of course, people walk out of the shop in the service station with their head in their phone or looking at their receipt or carrying their gear and not thinking mm. that people can often walk very much across. And now, a B-double with two big semi-trailers on it, the beeping in reverse, of course, is up with the prime mover. Yes. I've often wondered if they 
they use um, some kind of wireless camera or something to um, actually have a decent view of the, the rear yeah. trailer. I drove a four-ton truck the other day, or just re- well, reasonably recently released a Hino 500, and that had a camera in the back, but that was a rigid truck, so it mm. doesn't have that problem of, as you say, the trailers could be changed at the back. Now, talking about trailers, do you know... We wonder whether we can build cars in Australia and it appears as though we can't because of conditions. We assemble quite a few trucks. I think there's at least four major companies assembling trucks and we design and build the best, according to my mate, semi-trailers, the trailer part, in the world. Mm, wouldn't surprise me. Cause, I mean competitive. You, yeah, you, I mean, you've, they've got to travel over some, some pretty rough roads and long long distances in Australia, so... It wouldn't surprise me if we make good ones. Maybe that's getting back to the tuning for Australian conditions too, that there yeah, are rough I, roads. I, I can't imagine it's economical to ship a, a giant, you know, semi-trailer, um, you know, on a ship because mm. obviously it's designed to carry a container so it won't fit in one. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> but with the emergency braking, I've, I've given how many sensors are on modern cars. I'm surprised they haven't done this for just for regular you know, passenger cars. We do on the Subaru XV we tested and put a video on the, on the site uh, mm. that does, the upper models, does have an emergency braking going backwards. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll, we'll see that on, on more cars. So, so David, we, we mentioned tu- tuning the, you know, the truck for Australia. What, what does that really mean? Because I've often, um, uh, I've got two theories. Mm-hmm. One is that it means they reduce the damping a bit. Maybe they soften the springs a bit so it's not as jarring on that corrugated dirt road on the way to Nana's farm. <laughs> yes. So that's the realistic one. Um, option B, uh, it's just all marketing puff and the cars are exactly the same as the ones for any other country. The tuning is just really to sort of impress the locals. I think that do do the tunings and I've spoken to the engineers that do it. And I think they're very genuine. And I think their approach is not just the dirt road for Nana's farm, but just rough roads that the, you know, the patches on patches on patches on a bitumen road. Mm. Again, perhaps there's a lot of cars that might now don't really go near that, but they do do it. But there's no question there's an image of it because whenever they do a marketing campaign, you see a TV ad and saying, we've designed it for Australian roads. They have a picture of a car on a dirt road. Yes. Yes. I have wondered how, how far can they go? Because if you want to change the damping significantly, you might have to replace the shock, absor- shock absorbers with a, a different rating. Oh, they certainly re-rate the shocks. Or install different springs. The Stinger, they haven't done anything on things like the electronic stability control. They haven't done anything for Australia. That's right. pretty well set up. And by the way, you'd probably want it set up for worse conditions like snow for the very mm. rare chance that you might be on it. But yeah. they, they don't they they haven't done it for that. But yes, yeah, certainly the, the shock ratings, there's a there's a whole thing to rebound, the speed if you hit a bump. All right, mate, uh, we'll talk a, a little bit of quirky news in a moment, but coming up we're gonna in a little while, uh, probably a few weeks' time, road test the Toyota 86 and the Ford Transit van. Now, if anyone has any opinions about the Ford Transit van, they were, of course, the staple of many British crime shows. Yes. <laughs> it was the getaway van of choice. <laughs> Always full of mysterious cardboard boxes. We'll catch you up at the end of the program with some quirky news. Thanks, mate. No worries, David. 
You're listening to Overdrive. Kia are about to launch their brand new car, the Stinger, into Australia. It is a biggish car with rear-wheel drive and the top of the range has a twin-turbo V6 engine. They say they designed the car to reflect the elegant grand touring vehicles of the 1970s. I've had a drive of the vehicles, but we are not allowed to talk about the way the car performs for a few weeks yet. But I did catch up with Damien Meredith, the Kia Chief Operating Officer. I have this theory that you can tell the age of a man by the car's period that he loved, and it coincides with when he went through puberty, right? The Stinger has this great uh, heritage that, you know, you've thought about in terms of the 70s Grand Tourer. Was that your influence? I was at boarding school when the XY Falcon was uh, launched, so you're probably spot on, David. (laughs) Yeah, so look, I think that's, uh, as I said, Growing up in the northern suburbs, there was a huge Ford influence around where I, uh, where I grew up, and uh, yeah, that's an. In- we'll come to that because there's an interesting market segment there. A lot of Japanese and then Korean car manufacturers start out as the small and practical. Is this of a great maturing of the Kia brand? Uh, most definitely, and uh, as I said before. Um, Growing the volume of, of a business is, is, is great and it's exciting, but if you can grow the brand with that volume, it adds double to the excitement and double to the, to the pleasure. So we've been given a great opportunity with, uh, with Stinger and uh, we believe it can change the whole perception of what and how people think of Kia in Australia. So we're very excited. What, what are some of those perceptions? That there's more style, that there's a bigger car? What are, uh, I think that it's a, a bigger car, definitely. That it's a, a more performance-oriented vehicle, definitely. But I think that what it is doing is uh, it's creating a link between what's just finished in Australia and we're giving it that continuum. So people still have choice to buy a rear-wheel drive performance vehicle which in effect since local manufacturing's closing down has been taken away from them they've still got it with uh, stinger so i think that's going to help us australianize the brand significantly if some police departments take it on as they have looked at that would be just part of that that's correct it would be not the total picture of it but a one part of the jigsaw puzzle, uh, every police department, including the federal police, have looked at the vehicle. So we believe over time that they'll pick that car up, uh, whether it be for general duties or for uh, highway patrol. So um, that's not going to happen tomorrow, but uh, it will happen over the next couple of years. We're also incredibly lucky to have Peter Schreyer. So uh, when you have that quality of person in regards to design set up with vehicles, completed such as Stingham and what also is to come it's an exciting time for Kia globally but double exciting I think in a in a country that uh, loves rear-wheel drive uh, performance vehicles you sell uh, we selling it on the joy to drive our communication message for Stinger will be on yeah on on its on its enjoyment to drive yeah there is an elegance in grand touring but you also talked about the Falcon to start there. Is there a almost bogan component that do you want one to appear at the Summer Nats? Uh, look, uh, well, look, we have positioned the vehicle 
differently to the rest of the world. Uh, and it's because of the opportunity that we've had with local manufacturing closing down and, you know, since I was a young boy a long, long, long time ago, we've always been told, every Australian's been told, if you want to enjoy driving, if you want a family car, it's got to be rear-wheel driving, it's got to be big. And that's been going on for, well, basically since post-war, hasn't it? So we believe we're giving people that opportunity with, with Stinger. So we're not deleting its, uh, its GT history, but what we're doing is we, we believe that it's filling a void that's been left by local manufacturing. And uh, if we can fill that void and Australians can still have a performance vehicle that's family-oriented, we're quite happy to, to go along with that because we believe it's still a big market. There's almost been a very technology-type approach, yet there's still an earthiness in the Australian desire for the big rear-wheel drive. Is that a fair reflection? I think, that, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a perfect summary. Our focus groups basically said that, that uh, they still want that ability to drive a performance vehicle that, that suits the family. And I think that uh, Stinger, Stinger does that. It has other aspects to it, but specifically in Australia, we want families to enjoy what we give with Stinger. The fleet market, is there uh, an um, upmarket uh, component there for the, the fleet? The fleet market does come to us. It will be with a two-litre vehicle, but right now the orders that we're holding is nearly 100% private retail customers so um, that's to be expected we we haven't put a lot of work taking police out of the equation into into that uh, the fleet area at this point in time we are limited for numbers and we will be for probably 15 months so um, we want to satisfy that that retail demand first and if and when uh, supply loosens up, then we'll then we'll definitely look at uh, the fleet segment. Fleets don't want to rush into a new model, usually, do they? No, usually they uh, they take their time in regards to those things. So normally it's a slow burn. I think that, that will be exactly the same with uh, with Stinger also. Damien, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Overdrive. And let's talk about the more unusual, not necessarily weird, but ones that challenge our very thoughts of the past and how we might relive them, albeit in a sanitised sense, into the future. To do this, I'm joined on the line with my good friend Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Errol, if you had something that looked like an old record player, you put records on it or something that looks like it, but underneath it was all digital and actually played songs from iTunes. <laughs> Would that do? Would that be good enough? If you had something that looked like a wood fire for cooking pizzas, but inside was really an electric element, and you could even get it to taste good by adding an authentic char-grilled spice or something, <laughs> would you do it? I refer, of course, to the fact that they are now looking at making, perhaps just as a show car, but at least doing it at least once, an E-type Jaguar with an electric engine. Errol, is the world coming to an end? I think it would be for the traditionalists who think it's sacrilege to get a, a classic E-type Jag and take out the internal combustion engine 
not to mention the fuel tank and everything else. It, it goes back to the very core thing of why do you want an old car like that for the, the mechanical feel or for just the image? Sorry, you were going to say, Errol? Yeah, well, I think you're right. If, if it's just purely the image, then... Um, Maybe this is acceptable. And, and the mechanics that did this claim that they haven't modified, you know, the chassis of the car. So you could still put the, an original engine and, and drivetrain back into it if you wanted to. They haven't, you know, gutted the, you know, the engine mounts or anything like that. So if you get sort of an epiphany that you've done the wrong thing, you've forsaken your religion, you have to go back to the authentic so you can do it. It's a little bit like removing tattoos. <laughs> Is that a bit of regret? <laughs> uh, apparently, there is a serious aim for this, which is that they're sort of planning for the future, that there are already cities planning to ban internal combustion vehicles. Oh. So um, this is they're sort of, you know, testing the waters of being able to electrify classic vehicles to meet future enforcement. <sighs> the way they're doing this, they're exploring the market, apparently, for the electric conversion of those classic cars. And the price tag is about half a million dollars for the oh, conversion. Yeah. And that doesn't include the car. Okay. But I guess if you can afford a classic E-type Jag, which in good condition is worth a fortune anyway, you can probably manage that kind of cost for the conversion. Given that there are many rules that will stop you using a polluting car in many situations in the future, that whole idea of touring the streets in an old car, which is still, in a modern sense, environmentally acceptable, I guess I understand. The other thing is uh, the electric motor has 220 kilowatts, 295 horsepower, uh, which is more than the first E-Type Jaguar. Yeah. which only had 198 kilowatts, 265. Yeah, yeah. So it's got a bit more grunt than the original, and it actually weighs a bit less, so it's sort of doubly improved in the performance department. But you've still got the stock suspension, and the stock suspension from the you know the 60s was, well, it speaks for itself. Really. Basic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I think you still have the narrow tyres too, mm. so you're putting out a fair amount of horsepower, yeah. and being an electric motor at zero revs from start-off, you'd certainly be able to smoke the tyres. Yes, and they claim that they've kept the balance of the vehicle. So the drivetrain has similar weight distribution to the original drivetrain, so you don't lose the, the feel of it. I wonder, though, they, they don't mention if have they kept the sound. So have they added a bunch of speakers and some, you know, some electronics to fake the beautiful sound of that, that old motor? Yes, absolutely right, Errol. And, of course, the electric motor doesn't need a gearbox. No. In fact, they removed the gearbox. The motor goes where the gearbox was. Ah, that's how they keep the balance. Mm. Mm. So the battery's up the front where the engine was and the yeah. motor is where the gearbox was. Ah. The issue here is also the fact that just don't have any of the maintenance of the mm. old cars you yeah. you don't have to put the bonnet up beside the road and try and tune triple su carburetors but that's half the fun isn't it david well Keep keeping you know, those old things running <laughs> and being able to my, tinker my brother-in-law has a couple of old jaguars including not that old an xjs convertible so we're talking about the 80s and he let me drive it the other day down to Phillip Island and I opened the boot to put my bag in and there was a set of tools already there. Probably a spare carby just in case. <laughs> Fan belt, things yeah. like that. Yeah, a bunch of spark plugs. <laughs> 
the thing I love about these old cars, David, and, and this car was made before I was born, is that you open the bonnet and basically the only cables are the spark plug leads. <laughs> That's the extent of the electronics. <laughs> well, old Jaguars uh, had Lucas electronics didn't they was yes. it Lu- lucas was that part of the jaguar as well i'm not yeah, that yeah. Uh, technically minded but given that uh, i think doug mulray so you know lucas prince of darkness was the, his uh, notion because they kept failing and the lights would fail in this conversion they replaced the headlights with leds and things like that which i oh, i think was a that's a bit of that's a going a bit far i think you'll be able to see now yes what, what? <laughs> that takes away Takes away the challenge, doesn't it? Driving down a country road, squinting to try and pick out shapes. That was a challenge. Yeah, and you take a torch with you just to sort of give a bit more light. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm struggling, Errol. I've, I've got to be honest with you. I'm totally struggling with this concept. Of course, if you want to then suffer the ultimate utter derision you would go to one of those classic car events yes. with your an electric E-Type. Yeah, yeah. And you, now, you'd hope that fake exhaust note keeps you under the radar. <laughs> I think you'd get expelled, David, if you, if you did. <laughs> the Goodwood Revival. <laughs> I read the first article I ever read by one of the great motoring writers of Australia who was Bill Tucky but wrote under his own name for road tests and such, but he had a humorous name, the Romsey Quince, that he wrote under. And I remember the first article I wrote. I spoke then to um, Robinson, uh, who, uh, who, you know, a great writer, when Bill Tucky died, and I said, I remember that, and he remembered the article too. The opening line, the opening words of this article was, for God's sake, don't rev it. And it was a story of going to an MG Car Club historic meeting in a replica MG TC with a Volkswagen engine. Oh, dear. And so his point was that if you were near any historically motivated MG enthusiast and you revved it and it sounded like the chaff cutter that was a Volkswagen engine you were lucky to get out with your life. Yes, yes. I don't blame them, really. Horizontally opposed motors should not touch a British vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the sound would give it away. Errol, always lovely to talk to you. Uh, I thank you very much for your time. No worries, David. See you. Errol Smith, and we were talking some unusual stories to do with motoring, transport, touring, and everything to do with getting about. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell, Damien Meredith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.